Hi, MMBC Church family. This is Pastor Spencer uh, joining you again here this uh, week two of our Bible reading uh, plan here at the uh, church, reading through the New Testament in one year. Um, I hope you're doing well. I hope the first week went well for you as you enjoyed reading through the Gospel of Matthew, chapters one through five. This week, week two, beginning January 9th, we are focusing now upon Matthew chapter 6 through chapter 10. Uh, Five chapters this week, one chapter for uh, every weekday, Monday through Friday, or however you're choosing to read it. Uh, Perhaps you're reading it as uh, an individual. Another thing, an idea you could do as well is read it with your family, Uh, just one chapter a day. Uh, morning or evening or however you wanted to do that or however you're deciding to do that uh, is great. There's many many different ways that we can do this, but we're trying to read through the New Testament in a year as a church and and really trying to, to study the scriptures together to see who our Lord is better in the New Testament scriptures and to, uh, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So here we are in week two. Um, and we're reading Matthew uh, chapter 6 through 10. And one of the things that you'll notice right away this week as we uh, begin reading this week is that we're right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, right? We saw last week how Jesus is our Emmanuel, our Savior. He is uh, the teacher who's teaching us uh, about what real Christianity looks like, what the kingdom looks like. And we are to be those who are to find everything in him to give up on ourselves and to find everything, everything that we need in this life and the next in the person of Jesus Christ. And now as we go to Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is continuing to teach his followers in Matthew chapter 6 and chapter 7 about what this kingdom looks like. And he's teaching them, and you'll notice throughout this these passages that he's focusing upon their relationship to God the Father. And this is a powerful point because he's, he's highlighting the fact that no longer is God simply like a father to us, but he's revealing a truth that has always been, but it's being more clearly revealed through the Son of God, that God is the Father, the person. There, is a, there are three persons in the one God. God is one being who exists in three different persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so he says he's calling us to live as the children of God the Father. And he's he's talking about prayer. He talks about not being anxious and and not um, being too attached to this world. He's calling us to uh, be those people who uh, who love others and to who uh, serve others and treat them the way that we would want to be treated. He's calling us to be true followers of Him, not simply fake followers. Not to, and he's warning us about that that it is possible to profess to be a disciple of Jesus, but yet to not really be one. And so he's calling us to true faith and true repentance, looking to him for everything. And then after that, after this Sermon on the Mount, after he's instructed us in the most basic elements of what Christianity and the kingdom of God looks like, we then see Jesus going out and performing miracles, showing his power and his authority over disease, over sickness, over um even the natural elements as he calms the storm. And we see the disciples saying, what sort of man is this? We see Jesus casting out demons and showing all kinds of power and authority. And then we the height of this is really in chapter 9, when Jesus 
heals the paralytic, but he opens up by saying, take heart, my sons, your sins are forgiven. Highlighting that this king is different from all the other kingdoms of the world. This king doesn't use his authority to trample upon those around him, even upon people like this paralytic who could easily be trampled upon. This king comes and uses his authority to set the captives free, to forgive the guilty of their sins, to make sinners right with God by laying down his own life for their sakes. So this is a king unlike any other we've ever seen before. And that's what Matthew is trying to show us. This is a surprising king. He has power and authority without parallel. And yet he uses it in such a humble and wonderfully gracious way that he is more concerned for our salvation than we are. So we see Jesus going about doing good, showing his compassion, um, calling Matthew to be a disciple of him, uh, showing us that Jesus calls uh, all kinds of people. He calls fishermen and he calls tax collectors who are uh, you know, sinners and on the margins. Jesus uh, also looks out and sees the crowds, and we see the compassion of Christ at the end of chapter 9 after, as he's doing his ministry and he's with the people, which is a good reminder to us, and I think about it as a pastor as well. It's a, a good reminder to me that uh, if we're going to, to serve other people and to be with other people uh, and to take care of other people, we need to be with them. And we see Jesus here who's with and getting amongst all the common people, going amongst rubbing shoulders. He's healing. He's, he's with not the high and the mighty, but with everybody. And we see the great compassion and the concern for the souls of others that he shows. And he says that we are to pray that God would send, heart, send laborers into the harvest to call and to bring souls into the kingdom of God. And then in chapter 10, we have the second major discourse that we have in Matthew's gospel. The first major discourse is in chapters 5 through 7. That's the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous uh, discourse we have in Matthew. But remember, there are five discourses, five sermons that Matthew gives us in his gospel. The first one's Matthew chapter 5 through 7. The second one is Matthew chapter 10. The next one will be in Matthew chapter 13. But in here in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus here is instructing his 12 disciples in how they are to go out to Israel, not to the Gentiles yet, not to people outside of Israel, but only to, or only to the Israelites and to the Jews. And they are to go take the gospel of the kingdom to the Jews right now. And that's what he says to do. And he describes the response of the Israelites, the response of the people that they're going to go to. And he says, listen, they're not going to always like what you're doing. They're not going to always like um, what you're preaching and how you say it and such. Um, because remember, he says, you're not going to be treated better than I am. And if they reject me, they're going to reject you. How they treat me is going to be how they treat you. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. And yet, there is great reward for us when we follow the Lord Jesus Christ and seek to proclaim his gospel. And for all of us as Christians, when we seek to do good, um, as J.C. Ryle points out in his expository thoughts, whenever we seek to do good, especially when we seek to do good to, the, to God's people, but, but also when we seek to do good to anybody, 
we will be rewarded ultimately. God sees it, and uh, he sees us as we seek to honor his name and to bring glory to our Father in heaven. So that's kind of an overview of what's going on here in uh, chapters 6 through 10. And again, this week, I want to kind of walk with you uh, through some 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 thoughts to meditate upon what we learn here in these chapters uh, from J.C. Ryle. And also I've got one point that I want to draw from a sermon uh, from Martin Luther, uh, from uh, which is particularly uh, from Matthew chapter 9, uh, verses 2 through 8, whenever he is talking about the healing of the paralytic and uh, the forgiveness of the sins of this, this man. So the first thing I want to talk about with you from pulling from J.C. Ryle again, J.C. Ryle was uh, a pastor in the Church of England in the 1800s. He was a godly man who preached uh, the evangelical gospel truth that we cherish and uh, love the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has this very helpful work called Expository Thoughts on the Gospels covering all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he walks through them, and and he really describes and tells us and explains to us what is going on in these Gospel narratives in a way that's very practical, in a way that's uh, easy to understand and clear. It's very helpful. And um, so I hope, again, as we walk through these Gospels, to not simply, the most important thing, of course, is to introduce us to Christ and what the text is saying, but also I hope to to bring to mind to you, uh, introduce to you again through these writings, writings, J.C. Ryle, and perhaps you'll find him helpful, and maybe uh, you can do some research on him and and perhaps would be interested in reading other things that he has uh, as well. The first point I want to bring up is uh, from J.C. Ryle here, and it's it's rooted in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus is talking here about, uh, in verse 7, he says, Ask, and it will be given you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? J.C. Ryle has a section now whenever he talks about what we can learn from, from this section. He's, the first thing we learn here is the duty of prayer and the rich encouragements there are to pray. Prayer is so important, isn't it? And actually, Jesus is already in the God, as we read in chapter 6, as you're, or if you haven't read it yet, you're going to read it, Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer. Jesus teaches us a, a basic format and template how we are to pray the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But then he gives us here in Matthew chapter 7 further encouragements to pray. And J.C. Ryle says this, The last lesson contained in this passage is the duty of prayer and the rich encouragements there are to pray. There is a beautiful connection between this lesson and that which goes before it. Would we know when to be silent and when to speak, when to bring forward holy things and produce our pearls? We must pray. And now when he's talking about produce our pearls, he's talking about the part uh, right before um, in in chapter 7 where uh, Jesus is saying in verse 6 there, Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and to attack you. And so he's kind of playing off and saying, if we would know when to follow that command, we need to pray. 
Ryle continues, This is a subject to which the Lord Jesus evidently attaches great importance. The language that he uses is a plain proof of this. He employs three different words to express the idea of prayer. Ask, seek, knock. He holds out the broadest, fullest promise to those who pray. Everyone who asks, receives. He illustrates God's readiness to hear our prayers by an argument drawn from the notorious practice of parents on earth. Evil and selfish as they are by nature, they do not neglect the needs of their children according to the flesh. Much more will a God of love and mercy attend to the cries of those who are his children by grace. Rao continues, Let us take special notice of these words of our Lord about prayer. Few of his sayings, perhaps, are so well known and so often repeated as this. The poorest and most unlearned can tell you that if we do not seek, we shall not find. But what is the good of knowing it if we do not use it? Knowledge not improved and well employed will only increase our condemnation at the last day. Do we know anything of this asking, seeking, and knocking? Why should we not? There is nothing so simple and plain as praying, if a man really has a will to pray. There is nothing, unhappily, which men are so slow to do. They will use many of the forms of religion, attend many ordinances, do many things that are right, before they will do this. And yet, without this, no soul can be saved. Do we ever really pray? If not, we shall at last be without excuse before God except we repent. We shall not be condemned for not doing what we could not have done, or not knowing what we could not have known, but we shall find that one main reason why we are lost is this, that we never asked that we might be saved. Do we indeed pray? Then let us pray on, and not faint. It is not, less, it is not lost labor. It is not useless. It will bear fruit after many days. That word never yet failed. Everyone who asks receives. This is a, a powerful section here, I think, from, from J.C. Ryle, uh, really calling upon us to see the wonderful uh, reality that, that God wants us, Jesus wants us to pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the one that has saved us, the one who comes and who has laid down his life as the perfect sacrifice for sins, was himself often in prayer. He was often praying, often alone, praying and seeking the will of God the Father. And if he, who is perfect in every way, without sin, was praying, then how much more should we be about prayer? Ryle's questions here are really powerful. Um, do we know anything of this asking, seeking, and knocking? And you and I can ask the same thing. Do we pray? Jesus here is trying to say, listen, if you do ask, you will receive. It will be given to you. You will find. It's not fruitless. Jesus is exhorting us. Apparently, in the Sermon on the Mount, prayer is a big deal to him. It's a big deal as part of, it's, it's a big, a large part of what it means to be a child of God is to pray, to talk and reverently approach our Heavenly Father. And so, uh, and by the way, isn't that fascinating that the first time 
in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says we are to pray to our Father in heaven, focusing again, you're the children, he's the Father. And here again, he uses the same illustration for prayer as a father with his children, uh, continually using that illustration, that metaphor, to describe our relationship with God on account of Christ. And that's a, that's a powerful image, isn't it? And a good reminder to us that we should want to pray, not because we're approaching now the God who is ready to destroy us, but we're approaching the God who has done everything so that he would not have to destroy us, who gave up his only begotten son so that we might not be separated from him forever, but might come to know him in fullness of life and joy as the adopted daughters and sons of the living God. Everyone who asks receives. Let's pray and faint not. Secondly, from J.C. Ryle, not only do we learn about prayer and the emphasis from these chapters on prayer, but secondly, throughout we see the mercy and compassion of Jesus. Beginning in chapter 8, we see Jesus going about and doing miracles. He cleanses a leper right away, and then and then he cleanses the or uh, heals the servant of the centurion, and Jesus says, I've not seen any faith like this man has, the centurion, right? And then after that, he heals Peter's mother-in-law from sickness as well. And we read about these miracles, and sometimes we read them and we think perhaps, boy, this is kind of getting old. What in the world is going on here? Why is Jesus going about and doing all of these miracles? And we have to remind ourselves that Jesus, as he's doing them, is highlighting not only his power and his authority, but his compassion and his mercy towards us. So Jesus says here, uh, he, he heals and, and does this. And uh, sorry, I took a quick drink here. Let me get another drink of water. You understand. I know you do. Um, the mercy and compassion of Jesus. J.C. Ryle writes this. He says, let us learn for another thing, the mercifulness and compassion of of our Lord Jesus Christ. The circumstances of the three cases we are now considering were all different. He heard the leper's pitiful cry, Lord, if you want to, you can make me clean. He was told of the centurion's servant, but he never saw him. He saw Peter's wife's mother lying sick with a fever, and we are not told that she spoke a word. Yet in each case, the heart of the Lord Jesus was one and the same. In each case, he was quick to show mercy and ready to heal. Each poor sufferer was tenderly pitied, and each effectually relieved. Behold here another strong foundation for our faith. Our great high priest is very gracious. He can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He is never tired of doing us good. He knows that we are weak and feeble people. In the midst of a weary and troublous world, he is, ready, he is as ready to bear with us and help us as he was 1,800 years ago. It is as true of him now as it was then. He doesn't despise anyone. Job 36 verse 5. No heart can feel for us so much as the heart of Christ. That's a wonderful quote from J.C. Ryle, again reminding us of all these miracles and, and the purpose for them. He is touched with our infirmities. Sometimes we forget that Jesus can seem quite distant. We pray to him. We can't see him. We wonder if he hears our prayers or if he cares. 
And, and when we read the gospel accounts, Jesus here is reminding us in the text of Scripture and speaking to us through it and telling us and reminding us that he's a compassionate Savior. He's full of, of mercy. His heart is ready to heal. He's tender and kind. He doesn't break us. What a wonderful Savior we have who comes to us and is tender with us in, in our most difficult circumstances, whenever we're going through, perhaps we're, we're going through a sickness ourselves, or someone else is in our family is going through a sickness, or we're, we're hurting by the, the troubles in our lives or the trials that are going on in our midst, or perhaps we ourselves are, are struggling with spiritual issues or, or, or emotional issues or relational issues, whatever it may be, Jesus is full of compassion for us. He wants what is best for us. And he wants it so much that he is willing to pay the ultimate price for us. And he, and he shows us his tenderness. Notice how Jesus heals. He, he, he's willing to touch the unclean leper. No one would have been willing to do that because they would have been concerned. They would have been contaminated. And yet Jesus, the sinless one, is able to touch the sinner, the sick leper, here and to not be contaminated by sinners rather he transforms sinners and makes them holy now and clean we have a great savior friends he knows our weakness he knows us he's not going to break us he's a faithful and compassionate savior Thirdly, and this is from Martin Luther, Jesus has the authority to forgive us of our sins. We don't want to overlook that in chapter 9 when Jesus here is with the paralytic. And we read here, um, and behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, verse 2 here. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, when we read that, it can... can uh, can, we, we're so used to knowing that Jesus can forgive sins that we need to remember how shocking that would have been. That's why people were saying, he's blaspheming. How can he say that? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, of course, this is highlighting that Jesus is claiming to have the same power and authority as God has. That's what he's claiming. He's claiming that I have the same prerogatives that God does, therefore, he is of the same essence and substance with God. He is God in human flesh. Martin Luther has a, has a sermon in which he talks about, um, uh, whenever he talks about the forgiveness of sins, uh, here when Jesus says, particularly the, these, these beautiful tender words of Jesus, when he says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Uh, notice how tenderly Jesus speaks there. And, and Jesus, uh, or Martin Luther has this to say um, about, about this section. He says, Here Christ consoles the paralyzed man who is terrified by his sins, saying that he should be of good spirits. Then he calls him son. Moreover, he says that his sins are forgiven, that the father and the man are reconciled in that man, in that the man believes in the father. May we also believe that, in the name of Christ, we have the forgiveness of sins. And more, when my neighbor says to me, take heart, my brother, or when the neighbor says to you, take heart, my sister, your sins are forgiven in the name of Christ, we should confidently believe him, for what he says 
is most certainly true. Luther continues on. He says this, This in all its simplicity is the doctrine of the forgiveness of sins. In teaching it, Christ wants to liberate us from the evil of agreeing with the impious Pharisees by charging that in daring to forgive sins, Christ blasphemes against God. If one had asked the Pharisees how one should gain the remission of sins, they would have answered, We are made righteous by observing the ceremonies of the Mosaic law. But God commands only that we hold fast to Christ and listen to him. It is, after all, God who says, Listen to him, Matthew 17, 5. And what he teaches is the forgiveness of sins. Luther there is highlighting the fact that that Jesus, in coming to this man, is highlighting the fact that we are made right with God only because Christ forgives our sins. The Pharisees thought that they could be made right with God by what they did, that somehow they could buy themselves back into God's favor. And we can all be tempted to do that, can't we? Sometimes we can be tempted to think that if I'm sorry enough or if I feel bad enough for my sins, somehow that atones for them, and therefore I know that my faith is real. Or we can think that if I do enough good things or if I've, if I've sinned today and then I go out and I go, uh, then I'm able to stop sinning for a little bit, then, then I know that God feels better about me because I've stopped sinning. That's not the way the gospel works. In fact, we, we have to realize that underneath all the visible actual sins we commit lies a heart as hard as stone a heart that is sinful and corrupt, that can produce no good fruit. Therefore, the only thing that can save us is the man on the cross, Jesus Christ our Lord. We keep coming back and back to it, but that is the message of the gospel. And Jesus here is hammering to the Pharisees and hammering to us, but also then to believers, tenderly reminding them to you and to me, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven you. Cheer up, take heart. Your sins, which are great, your sins, which are many, are forgiven you. As we sing in that song, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And also, that's the message we have to remind each other about, don't we? That's why Luther says that we have to go and remind each other of the forgiveness of our sins. Okay, the next part here, part four, Jesus here in Matthew chapter nine. Uh, This is the next thing we learn here in this section is uh, another section from J.C. Ryle. And it's about what Jesus says. Remember, Jesus has healed the paralytic and then he calls Matthew and Matthew is a tax collector, so he's a, a sinner. And Jesus here tells these people, the Pharisees, he tells them this, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. J.C. Ryle says this, let us notice in the last place our Lord's precious declaration about his own mission. The Pharisees found fault with him because he allowed publicans and sinners to be in his company. In their proud blindness, they fancied that a sinner sent from heaven ought to have no dealings with such people. They were wholly ignorant of the grand design for which the Messiah was to come into the world, to be a savior, a physician, a healer of sin-sick souls. 
and they drew from our Lord's lips a rebuke, accompanied by the blessed words, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let us make sure that we thoroughly understand the doctrine that these words contain. The first thing needful in order to have an interest in Christ is to feel deeply our own corruption and to be willing to come to him for deliverance. We are not to keep away from Christ, as many ignorantly do because we feel bad and wicked and unworthy. We are to remember that sinners are those whom he came into the world to save, and that if we feel ourselves such, it is well. Happy is he who really comprehends that one principal qualification for coming to Christ is a deep sense of sin. Finally, if by the grace of God we really understand the glorious truth that sinners are those whom Christ came to call, let us take heed that we never forget it. Let us not dream that true Christians can ever attain such a perfection in this world as not to need the mediation and intercession of Jesus. Sinners we are in the day we first come to Christ. Poor, needy sinners we continue to be, so long as we live, drawing all the grace we have every hour out of Christ's fullness. Sinners, we shall find ourselves in the last hour, in the hour of our death, and shall die as such indebted to Christ's blood as in the day we first believed. Amen, right? Sinners, Jesus came to call, not the righteous. And that's true after conversion, just as much as before. We can be so tempted to think that Jesus dies for the sins I commit before I became concerned for my soul. But afterwards, I have to keep myself in God's good graces. I've got to fight sin. I've got to do all this stuff. And Jesus' blood maybe doesn't cover as much that, or maybe... Maybe we get prideful and we think, well, Jesus' blood doesn't need to cover that much because look how good I'm doing. No, 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 no. J.C. Ryle, let me read that again. Let us not dream that true Christians can ever attain such a state of perfection in this world as not to need the mediation and intercession of Jesus. Sinners we are in the day we first come to Christ. Poor needy sinners we continue to be so long as we live drawing all the grace we have every hour out of Christ's fullness. And then he highlights that we will need that same grace as much when we die as we did when we first believed. Notice what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says that he, he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Notice he does not say, of whom I was the chief. I used to be the chief of sinners, but now I'm not. Paul says, I presently am the chief of sinners. Friends, that is the gospel. Again, we do make growth in grace, but Jesus' mission is to call sinners. Sinners. Not fake sinners. Not sinners who think they've done a few little things wrong here or there, but real rotten to the core sinners. It's people with hearts that are hard and people who, who are rebellious and who don't believe the gospel as they ought. People who don't love the Lord Jesus Christ as they ought. People who are, who are Christians, who are real Christians, but who continue to sin in various ways here and there. 
and who still have that heart that is prideful and still struggle with anxiety and unbelief and and covetousness and anger. Jesus came to save sinners, not people who clean up their life. People, Jesus came for sinners like you and me. That's why the cross was necessary. If we could clean up our lives, and if that's all that needed, well, then why did Jesus come to die? Jesus died because there's no way we can really clean up our lives enough to make us acceptable with God. He died so that at the resurrection, we will be perfectly clean, not simply in status, but in our hearts and in our minds and with our hands. Now, we do make a beginning of that in this life, and we should strive for holiness. But let us never forget that we are in need of grace from the hour we first believed to our dying breath. Lastly, uh, J.C. Ryle here is highlighting from Matthew chapter 10 because Jesus is talking there and highlighting to us about uh, what Jesus about how we are to take the gospel to the world uh, to the, to Israel. Actually, he's telling the twelve that they are to take the gospel to Israel, and we can apply it more broadly. J.C. Ryle applies it more broadly to all of us who seek to do good to others. And, and one of the things he says this is that true Christians must make up their minds to trouble in this world. He's pulling this from Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, whenever Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. And then eventually Jesus says this in verse 38, And whoever uh, does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. J.C. Ryle says this, In the second place, our Lord tells us that true Christians must make up their minds to trouble in this world. Whether we are ministers or hearers, whether we teach or are taught, it makes little difference. We must carry a cross. We must be content to lose even life itself for Christ's sake. We must submit to the loss of man's favor. We must endure hardships. We must deny ourselves in many things, or we shall never reach heaven at last. So long as the world, the devil, and our own hearts are what they are, these things must be so. We shall find it most useful to remember this lesson ourselves and to impress it upon others. Few things do so much harm in religion as exaggerated expectations. People look for a degree of worldly comfort in Christ's service, which they have no right to expect, and not finding what they look for are tempted to give up religion in disgust. Happy is he who thoroughly understands that though Christianity holds out a crown in the end, it brings also a cross in the way. What a great reminder it is to us that, again, the cross comes before the crown. That in this life, Jesus is uh, telling his disciples that you get the kingdom. It's all of grace. And look at the the new heavens and the new earth and, and life But before we receive and enter into the fullness and enjoy the fullness of these things, we bear the cross in this life. We're like our master who bore the cross for us. And then now each of us as individuals in him, as believers in him, we each have crosses ourselves to bear. I like what he says there that uh, few things do so much harm in religion as exaggerated expectations. Uh, 
And that's so true, isn't it? Uh, sometimes there's, there's theology out there. There's a prosperity gospel. People that will go out there and tell you that your life should be nothing but a continual climb upward in victory and prosperity and, and in, and in uh, you know, growth and holiness nonstop and, and, and just a continual victorious climb, conquering everything. But notice how we conquer in the Bible. It is not by worldly standards of victory. It's not by money. It's not by wealth. It's not by influence. It's by being united to Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. We are more than conquerors in him who loved us. It's through the cross that we conquer not by conquering in in ways that the world thinks we should or by prosperity or by thinking that the Christianity means I should have an easy life or a life that's always happy or a life that's always, um, you know... uh, you know, you're always going to have the best kids in the best house and you're going to have the best finances and you're going to always have patience with everything. No, we, we have this inner joy and contentment in Christ. That is true. And that is something the world can never take away. But we bear a cross in this life. We, we bear the cross and there's no getting around that. And if we ever come into, and if we ever start to think that, um, <laughs> you know, that, that the Christian life is not going to be difficult in this world, then we're fooling ourselves. The Christian life is hard, but it doesn't mean it's not good. See, that's the difference, is Jesus and the, his heavenly Father have been trying to teach us that it is we know that we are God's children when we are disciplined and suffer. That was the temptation of the devil in Matthew chapter 4. If you are the son of God, God doesn't treat his kids this way. God doesn't let his kids, his son, hunger and thirst and go through poverty. God doesn't make his son go through the cross to get the crown. And Jesus is saying, nope, this is exactly how God the Father treats his eternal son. And as we see in Hebrews, especially emphasizing there, nope, this is exactly how God treats his children. He lets us hunger. He lets us thirst. He lets us go through trials so that we will know this, that man lives not by bread alone, but by every single thing that comes from the mouth of God. Our hope is in him, isn't it? Well, I hope this has been helpful for you, uh, edifying for you. I appreciate you uh, listening. And uh, next week, we're going to be oh, we're going to be in week three, Matthew chapter eleven through chapter fifteen. Should be good, um, and I hope that you are enjoying this. I hope this is helping you to to understand the gospels better, to understand the scriptures better. Uh, always ask questions. Uh, contact me um, if you you have any ideas or thoughts or questions, whatever that might be. I hope that you're growing in the Christian faith and growing in your understanding of the scriptures and what it means for us today. Thank you so much for listening. Take care. God bless.